Welcome to America Now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Freedom Hut, my friends. Buck Sexton with you, as always. Uh, Very much appreciate your time. Excited to get a chance to hang out with you today. Uh, The battle lines are drawn. We know what's going to happen from here, I think, at least in broad stroke. This is going to turn into a fight of leaks versus collusion. You see, depending on how you see politics in this country, depending on your political affiliation, your choice in media outlet, you will either be told a lot about the leaks that have been going on during the Trump administration or told a lot about the collusion. Uh, We'll talk a bit about this, by the way, updates on the various investigations ongoing into, quote, Russia collusion and leaks of classified information to the press about said alleged maybe exists. We don't know, can't tell you, but we're going to talk about it a lot. Collusion. Uh, Also get into Trump possibly leaving the uh, Paris Agreement. Uh, Give you some details on that. And a whole lot of other stuff coming up today on the show. Yes, an update to yesterday's uh, Kathy Griffin story. That'll come at the very end. We'll keep that. We'll keep that short. Not too much to say about it, but I didn't think we should follow up. And maybe we'll even discuss how the regulations, particularly of the Obama era, are crushing to the economy. Are preposterously onerous. Are are just destructive. Uh, to the to the economy and means money out of your pocket means money that your business should be making that it's not it is a decrease in american prosperity because of regulations because of the government telling you to do stuff oh and i've also got some thoughts on venezuela and how you don't hear much about venezuela these days i wonder why that is with our current media but that's just a preview of where we're going today in the show and of course we'll be making all kinds of detours stops and exciting on-the-fly uh, switches based on, well, how it all goes. Uh, first, let's talk about these investigations. Here's what's going on, in case you missed it. House Intelligence Panel issues seven subpoenas, according to the Wall Street Journal here, in Russia probe. Uh, and this is a sign that its investigation into alleged Russia meddling in the 2016 election is ramping up in scope and intensity, according to people familiar with the matter. If you go to CNN.com right now, CNN, also known as the Russia Investigation News Organization, uh, you have Comey to testify about Trump confrontations. Uh, You have House Intelligence Committee issues its first subpoenas and you have Flynn and Cohen subpoenaed. Who? What subpoenas? You got subpoenas? I got subpoenas. What subpoenas? Cohen is like subpoenas. Uh, But then you've also got General Flynn and others. There are going to be providing documents or testifying or both before the committee. I think the big uh, media excitement today, 
at least from those who oppose Trump, which is 90 percent of the media, uh, give or take. It has to do with the upcoming Comey revelations. Now, here's my theory on this. They're saying right now that Comey is supposed to testify that Trump tried to shut down the Russia investigation at some level. That is that is what they are reporting. But that is a report in advance of the facts. What happens if Comey's testimony is much more nuanced than that? What if the former FBI director gets up and says, well, I I didn't think that he was specifically telling me to end the investigation. He was just expressing in a nonchalant way that he hoped that this would all just come to an end soon. But it was not a direct order, which I think is much more likely to be his testimony, although I don't know. But you see, this is a perfect example, isn't it? The sources going to the media right now telling us that former FBI director James Comey telling us that he will say things about Donald Trump in testimony before Congress, before he has said it, creates the damage before we know the truth of the matter. And by the way, just because Comey says it doesn't make it true. That's a that's an aside. But there will be days now of, wow, what would it what will it mean or what would it mean or both if Comey says that Trump tried to shut down the Russia investigation? Oh, there'll be all these think pieces and there'll be lots of editorials about the process of impeachment and whether it's even possible to press criminal charges against the commander in chief for obstruction of justice and That will all be in advance, you see, of the testimony. By the time we find out what Mr. James Comey has to say, we will have been treated to a steady diet day's worth of damaging anti-Trump media narrative on this. Now you see how the game is played. There is something in advance or something that you're going to talk about in advance. You establish the perception before there's the reality to counter the narrative. And you run with it and you push it and you make it as damaging as possible. And there's no unringing the bell. So that's what I see here. And as I've noted to you, by the way, the the process is the punishment. The, The purpose of much of this investigation is to slow down, to stymie, to hamper uh and and hamstring everything that the administration's trying to accomplish. As well as to be a a catharsis, right? Whenever somebody at home who's a Democrat and believes all this stuff, and by the way, there's a a really fascinating um, piece out. I'm trying to find right now what the specific numbers are, but it says that more or less there are a lot of people who believe that the actual election was hacked, meaning that the numbers were changed, meaning that someone got into the voting machines, which is an astonishing, uh, an astonishing, well, lie, of course. No one, no one who pays attention thinks that that's what happened. But it is commonplace among many Democrats now to believe this. They think that there is, in fact, not just a Russia collusion conspiracy, but that the election itself is a false election. And if that is the case, well... Why would they even begin to accept this president in any way, shape, or form? He's illegitimate. They really think this is true. And if you're sitting at home and you believe that, anything that is anti-Trump, therefore, you will like. 
Um, any story about Russia collusion you will pay attention to. This is effective for the leftist media business model. And all these people that I see, by the way, on TV, oh, we're just going where the facts lead us. You know, democracy dies in darkness. We're, we're journalists now. They seem to forget the damage that was done to the reputation of journalism over the course of eight years of Obama. And this isn't a what aboutism. What about the Obama years? This is just a fair analysis of what the American people think of the media that currently presents them with stories, particularly stories from inside D.C. about politicians and about policies. After eight years of being a bunch of throne shining uh, quizlings, uh, people who just will do anything in order to be in the good graces of the administration, who will excuse any affront to the Constitution, who will make allowances for any act of authoritarianism because Obama was so great. I think he even saw a headline earlier this week from Barbara Walters that, quote, we thought he'd be the next Messiah. After all that, they expect us now to believe them when they say, no, we're just bringing you the facts. It's all about journalism. No, these investigations, whether it's the House investigation, the House Intelligence Committee, or the special counsel led by former FBI Director Robert Mueller, all of these investigations, plus whatever investigative work the media outlets can do with their leaks, Right, Their panoply of leaks just coming to them all the time, right when they need them, right when it is essential in the news cycle. They think that they can win this propaganda war against the administration and it will end with Trump being impeached or resigning. That is what they think will happen here. Um, and if the administration makes some missteps, and I worry sometimes, not that they'll do things that are as unethical and terrible as Democrats pretend to think they would actually do, but with the kinds of measures that one would take because they're not really aware of what game the other side is playing. They don't understand the legalities. They don't understand the way this will be treated politically. Uh, they're a little bit loose with the way they talk about some of this in this White House. Um, and, and have made some amateurish errors, I think we could say, that have fed into a media that just wants to destroy them. Now, there are some out there that are fighting the good fight on this one and refuse to go down without establishing at least that this is truly a, a witch hunt of, uh, of, of proportions that we have never seen before. This, this is a first. The media likes to often say about Trump whenever he does something they do not like, oh, this is unprecedented. No, no. Usually they are hyperventilating about something that if they took five seconds and looked up on the Google, they'd figure out, oh, no, in fact, this was done by the last president and the president before that. Maybe we shouldn't pretend that this is the death of the republic. Day in and day out. And one more, one more story after another about how Trump is destroying America with his latest actions. I would hope that at least... We will be able to uh, mount a sufficient defense against the coming media onslaught that anyone of honest mind, which might not even be enough to prevent a Democrat landslide in the midterms. I don't know. I worry. But anyone of, of honest mind, anyone who's willing to look at the facts and the truth will say, wow, 
this is a media reversal of the American people's decision on Election Day. That's what this is all really about, about making the Trump presidency not just end, but making it as though it never happened. These are the stakes, my friends. Uh, This is the fight that we are in. And as we get more about this uh, series of investigations, you'll see uh, that this is not going anywhere and it is White House under siege. It's going to be continuing for months, if not years. Uh, But some are fighting well on this, and I'll get to one of them. I'll give you a little little hint here. John Sununu recently on Russia collusion had some great stuff to say. Just because something looks gross, it doesn't mean it's illegal. Just because any ethical person would refrain from certain behavior doesn't necessarily make it criminal. Now, why am I telling you this? Don't worry, I promised you Sununu, and I'm going to give you some Sununu at its finest. It's actually on BuckSexton.com now as well if you want to watch the full video later on. Not now because we're on radio. Um, But the House Intelligence Panel has issued seven subpoenas in the Russia probe. I mean, subpoenas are flying, flying wild all over the place today. You got subpoenas coming out of all over the place. Um, You've got Mike Flynn subpoena, uh, Michael Cohen, who, who? subpoena, who, Uh, you know, he's been subpoenaed. And now the House Intelligence Committee, according to the Wall Street Journal here, has issued seven subpoenas in a sign that its investigation into alleged Russian meddling in the 2016 election is ramping up in scope and intensity. The Republican-led committee issued four subpoenas related to the Russia investigation. Three are related to questions about how and why the names of associates of President Donald Trump were unredacted and distributed within classified reports by Obama administration officials during the transition between administrations. The committee has subpoenaed the National Security Agency, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and the Central Intelligence Agency for information about what is called unmasking. Um, These subpoenas seek information on requests by former National Security Advisor Susan Rice, former CIA Director John Brennan, and former United Nations Ambassador Sam, uh, Samantha Power for names to be unmasked in classified material. UN Ambassador Samantha Power? That's an interesting... I didn't know that she was involved in this, to be honest with you. That's interesting. So UN amb- she's, the, she's the UN Ambassador and she's... Hmm. The plot thickens, my friends. But here is what I want to tell you. And I don't think everybody on the right who analyzes the news and what's going on in the world for a living would necessarily be either, well, aware of this or willing to tell you this. Even if there is found to be a pattern of unmasking that was clearly politically motivated, it might be very difficult for that to be anything other than a case of poor judgment in the sense that If the discretion is there for these members of government to make the requests and they keep making the requests, I don't know if they violated any criminal statute by doing so. 
I, I don't think that there is a criminal statute that they would have. Well, now, now, anyone unmasking and then leaking, that's clearly a violation of federal criminal statute. But just the requests themselves may not be a problem. Now, they may be a huge political problem, a huge political liability. It will look very clear, I think, depending on what we find out and what we know in all of this. It will become obvious that there was a pretextual abuse of intelligence gathering authority or not in, in this case intelligence gathering unmasking um, using the power that some of these senior officials have to find out who u.s persons are that are collected in intelligence as we've discussed before this is now all out there people understand unmasking they understand the procedures in place that are supposed to protect u.s persons from being caught up in violation of their Fourth Amendment rights in intelligence collection. But if the people who are given the discretion within the intelligence apparatus are creating a pretext, right? They're saying, well, I want to know about this because of X. As long as they have that pretext, I'm not sure you can get them on anything beyond clearly they were trying to and this is assumed we don't know what's going to be said here. The, the guy to the house has to do their investigation. And I do feel a little uneasy about applying the same techniques on our side that the other side does, which is supposition, insinuation, make the conclusion before you've got the evidence. Right. Uh, you know, first comes the sentence, then comes the trial. I think that's Alice in Wonderland. Uh, that's what the left has been doing with with Trump and Russia and collusion. But on our side, with the inquiry into the unmasking because this that's what this is going to turn into now unlike benghazi which people have talked about a lot as see what they did to hillary clinton and benghazi and all the investigations and there's no narrative of what both sides really want to look into the democrats in benghazi didn't want to talk about it and republicans were like no we'd like to know why you lied about this and why this was a failure and why four americans died and uh but democrats just wanted to move beyond it what we see here with the investigations into the Trump administration right now is on the one hand, you have an obsession with a collusion narrative that still has no evidence. And on the other, you have Republicans who are digging in deep into what was going on with unmasking, you know, what was going on with intelligence collection and U.S. persons. And of course, also leaks. How does this information find its way to the press in, in a, by the way, you know, people keep talking about leaks and 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 I'll give you some of the statistics and some more data on that um, soon. Uh, speaking of statistics and data, by the way, I, I forgot uh, the alternate. This is on the Daily Caller. Fifty eight percent of Democrats think Russia rigged the vote to get uh, Trump elected. Uh, that's according to the latest economist YouGov poll. 58% said it is probably or definitely true that Russia tampered with vote tallies. More than half of Democrats in a poll. I mean, you can tell me this poll is nonsense. I, I don't know. Is this a good poll? Economist, YouGov? I don't know. But that you can find any reputable pollster that finds a poll that 58% of Democrats think the vote was rigged when it clearly wasn't. You know, these are the hashtag science, hashtag facts people, right? Uh, they are detached from reality here. But I got to get back onto leaks and and Sununu giving a clinic.
Don't know how you do the sununu that you do so well. It's a spell. Sununu makes me want to shoop. Um, that's how I felt after the uh, Sununu clip I'm about to play for you here. He just did a great job. He was on CNN. Uh, he was on CNN and he uh, was taking, well, he was dealing with the Russia collusion narrative. Um, and he was asked a whole bunch of questions about it. And this is how he handled the collusion. This is Bush's former chief of staff, John Sununu, showing us how it's done. Play the clip, please. So Jared Kushner meeting with a major Russian banker of a massive bank that has connections to Vladimir Putin. Nothing to see there. Well, tell me what you think is to see there, and I'll comment on it. What do you think would be the motivation? I don't think there's anything Wait, there. Wait, pause it for a No, no. But what do you think? <laughs> well, no, no. You're asking the question, and you clearly think there's something. So what do you think, anchor lady? I think it's, it's Allison Camerata. Go ahead, play. You, why would they so do it? You're but implying, so why, you're why would implying they because during the 10 weeks, everybody is trying to meet somebody who's going to be in the administration. Mm-hmm. Everybody who's involved in business, everybody who's involved in politics. I sure. can't tell you how many people tried to meet with me between and the time I was And did you meet with a Russian staff. banker when everybody tried to meet with you? Pause. That is what we call a non sequitur. That's irrelevant. I mean, of course, did he meet with a Russian banker? No, but does that mean that meeting with a Russian banker is wrong? It all depends on the context, right? That's like saying, you know, uh, it, it, well, it's it's a non sequitur, bottom line. It, it brings something into the conversation that has nothing to do with anything. No one's saying that Sununu met with a Russian banker, but that doesn't matter. The question is, is it wrong for Jared Kushner to have allegedly had a meeting with a Russian banker? And Sununu doesn't, it doesn't matter, right? But anyway, keep playing. Sununu does well. No, but I had breakfast with the vice president at the Russian embassy and a lot of folks there started talking to me. Mm-hmm. And would you have mm-hmm. carved out time to meet with a Russian banker with ties to Vladimir Putin if he asked? I'm not even sure what would have happened if that had happened. First of all, Putin wasn't there. But look, you're asking hypotheticals on hypotheticals. Well, I'm trying There's to nothing, actually take your temperature. You, I mean, I'm you trying to nothing... gauge your, your comfort level with all of this. My comfort level, the only discomfort I have is with folks in the media trying to create a veniality without having the courage to to specifically tell me what the veniality that I should be concerned about. All right, is. pause it for one second here. You, you see what's happening here? She's coming up with hypothetical questions. You know, they're just, just asking questions. She's coming up with, with hy- hypothetical questions that are all meant to have an implication, right? So, again, thought experiment. Very useful when you're dealing with the media and propagandists who are out there who think that they're, oh, they're nonpartisan, right? Democracy dies in darkness. They're just, they're just trying to bring the, the, the good stuff, the truth to the people, which is nonsense. Um, but here we are. Um, I could sit around and ask... Uh, a lot of questions to somebody and we would all know what I'm implying. Right. So if I sat down and I said, Hmm, so Mr. You know, so Mr. Smith, uh, does your, does your wife always, uh, have to visit the hospital for hitting her head, uh, you know, once every other week. And he goes, Oh, well, no, but she doesn't, 
She she hasn't visited the hospital in in years. What do you? No no no. I just want to ask. You know, did did she did, when she visits the hospital with great frequency? Are you there by her side? But what are you talking about? That's not even that hasn't happened. That's a oh, but but let's just let's just say that your wife was appearing with mysterious bruising somewhere. Um, would would you would you notify the authorities about that? You you see what I'm and the guy says, well, oh, but but there's no bruising. What do you you see what I'm saying? The implication is clear, right, from from the questioning. They're, they're not asking questions searching for a fact. They have a conclusion, and they ask questions supposedly to or, or, or in support of that conclusion. And they're questions for which no one can give proper answers anyway. But, oh, no, we're, we're, just, we're just asking questions. Uh, and Sununu's saying, what are we even talking about? Okay, so Kushner met with a banker who, you know— this, by the way, coming from the people who didn't think it was weird at all for the former president to launch his political career in the living room in Chicago of a known terrorist, right? That that wasn't weird at all. This from the same media who thought that it wasn't weird in the least for the president of the United States for two terms to have spent 20 years of his life going to a church where the pastor would say things like, damn America and... That after 9-11 or 9-11 was the chickens coming home to roost and no, 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 nothing, nothing weird about that at all. In fact, to bring that up was racism. But now it is Donald Trump that is the subject of their inquiries or Jared Kushner, who's, of course, Donald Trump's son-in-law. And I'm the first to say, by the way, that Trump should not have made his daughter and his son-in-law the most senior advisors in his government okay that's that was not a good idea that does not send good messages i disagree with that i don't think it's the end of the world but i disagree with it i think that that is a mistake uh, i i think that it is not unethical but unwise at a minimum um but that said you got the media running around trying to convince everybody that jared kushner is a traitor based on nothing you know, the word treason is thrown around like we're talking about parking tickets here. You know, and maybe the guy's a traitor. Maybe he's not. Uh, th- there are a few things, I think, that most Americans would more uh, fear as a description of themselves and their behavior than traitor. I mean, I, I think, you know, traitor is below, is below uh, you know, maybe, I, I don't even know. I mean, you, you, it depends on the level of treason, right? But traitor goes on the list, traitor to your country with you know, racist, with, uh, you know, child molester. I mean, th- these are it's a really bad thing to have betrayed your country. And yet much of the media seems to think that the president and some of his top advisors have betrayed the country. They ask questions meant to imply that the president of the United States has betrayed his country. And John Sununu is just not having it. Keep going, please. Well, I don't have. I have not identified a veniality. Have you? Well, you should be concerned if there was collusion. And that's what I don't I don't see any evidence of collusion. Do you? No. No. Okay. So that 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 should end your reporting right there. You should put an exclamation point after you know. Understood. But we're at the beginning of the investigation. So what you're seven months into the investigation. Not exactly. Seven months has just taken over. Robert Mueller has a new investigation. Okay, pause, pause. Important. We have leaks about 
uh, leaks that that you would assume uh, if they are true. Right. And I was like, oh, if they're true, look, I I don't have access to any of this stuff and haven't had access to anything like this in a very long time. So I don't know. So I I hate having to play the government game too. I've been like, well, if they're true, like I'm just like you. I, I don't know if they're true or not. But assuming the leaks are real information, which I think we can all assume, uh, you know, some of them are, um, they, they would only be able to come from a classified from from classified means, and that tells us that there are people who are willing to not just break the law and engage in that kind of unethical behavior, but to risk their careers and their freedom to hurt Trump. That is a that is a next level kind of hatred, right? It's one thing to risk getting fired because you hate a president. It's another thing to risk maybe going to prison because you hate a president. But there are people in the government who fall into that category. On top of that, the notion that we would not know at this point, and I know I've said this before, but it does bear repeating, we would not know at this point if there was Russia collusion that was truly damning. I'm not even talking about illegal necessarily, because just there, there's no way. As I've said to you, what does that even look like? You know, sitting down with some guy uh, who's like, well, will you help us uh, hack Podesta's email? Uh, no, that that didn't happen. Okay, I can tell you that did not happen. Uh, nor nor were Trump or any of his associates saying, yeah, go for that long shot, bizarro Podesta DNC email hack plot. And if anyone finds out about this, I will be ruined and my reputation destroyed forever. But I love Trump that much that I would take this risk. It just when you really look at this, when you when you apply the the microscope of your honest and incisive analysis to this entire theory, it just falls apart. It disintegrates because it doesn't make sense. But that we are told now that this has been going on. Oh, it's it's just starting. Sinunis has been going on for seven months. Trust me, if there was a conversation that had occurred between Donald Trump or one of his top people, I don't want to hear about how, you know, somebody who showed up once at a Trump rally uh, and, and tried to raise some money for the Trump campaign once had a friend of a friend who was a Russian intelligence guy that wanted some more influence in the, in the administration. I mean, give me a break. If we're talking about a meaningful contact between meaningful parties on both sides, Trump's side and Russia's side. If that existed, don't you think we would have heard about it by now? It would exist, I assume, somewhere in the intelligence community's archives, in its databases, um, and someone would probably know. But here's the other possibility that doesn't get much attention from the media, but I think it should. What if all along there were some people in the government, in the Obama administration, who were so overtaken by and so caught up in a frenzy as a result of the theory that some may have started inside the community or inside the top levels of the Obama administration, that there was active Russia-Trump collusion, that they just went too far. What if they abused their authority whether it's in unmasking or any number of areas? What if they leaked information? All for naught in the sense that there was no real Russia-Trump collusion. Well, then they have to at least try to 
create some narrative after the fact, right? Then they have to push and say, well, yeah, there was a lot of smoke. Oh, man, there was so much smoke. Because if when all is said and done, there's no fire, but there have been illegal leaks and there have been abuses of power within the government, it is, in fact, the Democrats and the Obama administration and its legacy that will be deeply damaged by this, not Trump resigning, getting impeached, or being frog-marched in handcuffs out of the White House, um, because I don't think any of those things are ever going to happen. Phones are open if you want to chat, my friends. 844... Oh, wait, did we finish Sununu? Is there a little more? Oh, there's a little more. Let's... let's, Sununu makes me want to shoot. Play it. Well, no. I mean, look, that's not exactly fair, Governor, because as you know, uh, Congress people have been calling for a special counsel to do this, to handle this, because so it gets away from all the partisan bickering. So it's just starting in that regard. Can I ask a question? If Mueller comes out and says that my version is correct and yours isn't, how much crow are you going to eat? Governor, I don't have a version of events. Of course you do. The whole half hour I listened to is a version. Governor, we are asking questions of the sources of the people who know attempting to see where the investigation is. The investigation is without without identifying identifying a veniality that should be investigated. Yeah, usually investigations. Your perspective that there's nothing to see here. Okay, yeah. And that the investigation. We can cut it. We've got, we get the idea. That's, by the way, that's where I really just want to lose it. Whether it's CNN or MSNBC or any number of others, this whole thing about, you know, we don't think that Trump did anything. We we just want to find out. Oh, no, we, we don't think anything bad happened here. Those same people, by the way, will jump down your throat if you write on, you know, Facebook or Twitter or something. Uh, that you don't believe there's anything here. So then, oh, how could you say that? Uh, meanwhile, you're like, well, wait, I thought you have no evidence, and I thought this is just an investigation. So why do you get angry when I say, I, I don't think there's anything here? Clearly, you do think there's something here, media. Clearly, Alison Camerata and the rest of the major cast over at CNN does think there's something here. And that they can't even come clean on that is fascinating to me. And tells us a whole lot about where all this goes. All right, eight four four nine hundred buck. We will be right back, team. Stay with me. Lines are lit. Let's take him, Greg, in Oklahoma. Is this is this warfighter, Greg? I feel like I know you, Greg. This is Warfighter Greg. Good to talk to you, my man. Thanks for calling in. Absolutely. I'm so glad you talked about Sununu. Uh, After watching that clip you put up yesterday on your page, I had to call you and talk to you about it because the anchor, I don't remember who it was, um, but it seems like people at CNN are using the phrase, well, we're just asking questions. Because she's the third or fourth anchor that I've heard. Uh, I I know a couple of senators have said it over the last couple of weeks, too. They're just using this phrase, kind of like you said, as an instigator to an outcome that they want. They're just saying, we're just asking questions. Great. Uh, well, I could ask questions about anything. You're asking them for a very specific reason, acting as if your reason for asking them is completely innocent, which we all know it's not. Like Sununu said, they spent the last, what, seven months looking into this, and she said, no, there's no evidence of collusion. And there's, collusion's not a crime to begin with, like you have continued to say for the last seven months. I just find it interesting that they're all glomming on to this 
we're just asking questions and narrative uh, just to further it along to keep uh, their their way of talking about something. Right. I mean, imagine, you know, that they compare this to Benghazi. And I always want to say, first of all, that's that's offensive because Benghazi, something happened. We, we, we lost four Americans. We had U.S. facilities attacked and destroyed and we were lied to about it. Those were all facts when when we were saying, let's have a Benghazi investigation. As Sunun is pointing out, we are having an investigation over no apparent crime, an investigation over uh uh, Russia influencing the election, which doesn't in any way affect, you know, the, the Trump campaign has still to this day, there's no proof the Trump campaign had any part of this whatsoever. So it's like a congressional investigation of a Russian propaganda campaign that had no chance of swaying the election anyway. That's what's going on here, right? And as, and, uh, But also they've piled on all these leaks to make it seem like there's more here, which actually are crimes. Exactly. And I'm actually glad and kind of surprised the Republicans are coming out and actually, you know, subpoenaing all these people about the unmasking. Because as we both know, unmasking is the highest level of crime that I, I think we could possibly do um, when it comes to intelligence. I mean, you, you're letting people know who and what they're doing um, and finding out just because you want to what Americans, because you have some sort of political bent. Um, it's complete insanity that this isn't the leading story every night is who did the unmasking. Um, well, un- unmasking is not, but Greg, I got unmasking is not necessarily illegal at all, right? Unmasking can be legal, but unmasking for political purposes is an abuse, and unmasking and then leaking but, is definitely very illegal. Right, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I specifically meant the leaking to the New yeah. the Washington Post in that. It's, just, it's completely insane that that's not brought up every single night by every Republican that goes on TV. I mean, right. I mean, by the way, you know, th- there are leaks where someone's where someone's talking to a reporter and they're supposed to be talking to a reporter and they say more than they mean to or something. And, you know, that's bad, but that's a mistake. The leaks that we're talking about here are intentional to harm fellow Americans, to break oaths and to break the law. You know what I'm saying? They're, it's not an accidental leak. These are bad leaks. Exactly. We, we, we know how the intelligence community works, and there are times when oh, man, I didn't mean to say that, or I didn't mean to do whatever it was to... to Thank you for your service, Greg. I just realized we're at time. We're going to cancel the Paris Climate Agreement and stop... Unbelievable. And stop all payments of the United States tax dollars to U.N. global warming programs. President Obama entered the United States into the Paris Climate Accords unilaterally and without the permission of Congress. This agreement gives foreign bureaucrats control over how much our energy and how much we use right here in America. So foreign bureaucrats are going to be controlling what we're using and what we're doing on our land in our country. No way. That was the uh, horrible, detestable, uh, worst of the worst president of the United States saying he wants to uh, cancel the Paris Climate Agreement. This is uh, the worst. I'm so sad. This man who eats the steak with the ketchup. 
This is a disgrace. Yep, he might get rid of the uh, the Paris Climate Agreement. That's that's what uh, is being said today. Hasn't happened yet. He promised it would happen at some point. I was applying there before with you. The French people will be very upset if he gets rid of the agreement. The whole world will be upset if his verbal flatulence is made a reality. So we'll see. Um, let's talk about this agreement for a second, shall we? Um, you have people, uh, well, you have people out there who are saying that this is a, a moral catastrophe if they were to step back from this agreement. I, I read through the agreement today which was brutal because it's so boring and full of sentences that go like, being parties to United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, pursuant to the Durban Platform for Enhanced Action, in pursuit of the objective of the convention, recognizing the need for an effective and progressive response, also recognizing specific needs and special circumstances of developing countries, taking full account of, recognizing that, emphasizing the blah, blah, blah. Oh, gosh, it is brutal. You get into this agreement. But I I did want to read a part of it to you that will be necessary for our discussion of this. Because, once again, this, this goes into the why the media hates Trump pile. This climate stuff is so... Very, very important to them. Uh, but this goes in that pile. Uh, they say in this in this Paris agreement, um, they say the following. This is what we have under the Obama administration agreed to. Parties aim to reach global peaking of greenhouse gas emissions as soon as possible, recognizing that peaking will take longer for developing country parties and to undertake rapid reductions thereafter in accordance with best available science so as to achieve a balance between anthropogenic emissions uh, by sources and removals by sinks of greenhouse gases in the second half of this century on the basis of equity and in the context of sustainable development and efforts to eradicate poverty. Let me tell you what this means. They're saying that all the countries that are agreeing to this thing, will they will take into account where they are on the development scale and they will determine what's a meaningful or realistic uh, CO2 reduction goal for them or greenhouse gas emission reduction goal. Um, and then they will self-grade and there will in fact be no enforcement mechanism in place. So this is the climate equivalent, my friends. Of, and just imagine how much fun this would have been. If you were back in high school and instead of your math teacher saying, all right, here are the 20 questions on the exam. You will have a total of 60 minutes to complete it. Please show your work for partial credit. I'm having nightmares right now, by the way. I'm about to, I'm about to pass out here it's thinking about old math tests. So, so bad at geometry. I mean, really, I just didn't pay enough attention because I was distracted uh, by other things going on in one's life as a young man. Um, But yeah, I was not good at geometry. And I I remember that feeling in your stomach when you'd get back a math test that you knew hadn't gone well and and it got put on the table in front of you and you were just like, ooh, ouch, a little kick in the stomach feeling of like, 
does that really say like 64? That's not good. Um, I had some, had, had some rough ones on the math side of things. Uh, fortunately, anyway, I'm not going to start talking about high school math class. All of you are going to switch the channel. We don't want that. So, but you know what I mean about, imagine if you could have just, for your 20 questions, decided what the questions would be and decided what the answers were and graded it yourself. Wouldn't that have been fun? That is what the climate agreement breaks down to. That 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 what it is what it becomes. Uh, and here from the Heritage Foundation, which I know is you know conservative, and so they would say, well, conservatives can't do science, um, which is a slander. But the left likes to say that stuff. You know, the same people who believe that gender is a state of mind want to lecture the rest of us on science. Okay, that's interesting. Um, the benefits, though, according to Heritage, are as follows. If we did everything in this climate agreement, which, by the way, I, I do think Trump is going to pull out from this agreement, because why not? It'll drive liberals crazy, which will be fun, right? We want that. I do think that he will uh, he will pull the U.S. out of this. And I also, by the way, don't like this. Senate doesn't have to ratify things anymore. The president just commits us to stuff, and that that's a problem. But separate discussion. Uh, here's what it would have given us. If all carbon dioxide emissions from the Heritage Foundation uh, uh, paper on, on the climate agreement, if all carbon dioxide emissions in the United States were effectively eliminated, there would be less than two-tenths of a degree Celsius reduction in global temperatures. <gasps> two-tenths, you say? My good man. Save us all. Yeah, two-tenths of a degree, everybody. Oh my gosh, the the glaciers are going to melt. It's crazy. Nope. They're not going to melt. That's going to be okay. Dude, you'd be like, come on, what about the polar bears? You know what I mean? Like, they have to swim so far from, like, one ice floe to another ice floe. It's like polar bears, and, you know, they're like, like, I'm a bear. Like, you know, I'm swimming and stuff. You're going to drown, man, because of global warming. Uh... By the way, polar bears are only on the northern part of Alaska, as I found out. Thank you to uh, our Team Buck Anchorage friends for uh, pointing that out to me. I knew there were polar bears in Alaska. I just didn't know what part of Alaska. They're way up north. So Anchorage only has grizzly bears. But I do know that there are grizzly bears that have gotten, in fact, into Anchorage city limits. I've heard stories. But I digress in a big way. All right, back to this. So it says two-tenths of a degree Celsius in this Heritage Foundation report on the Paris Climate Agreement. And this is if we did everything perfectly. And then it goes on. In fact, quote, if the entire industrialized world could cut carbon emissions down to zero, the climate impact would still be less than four-tenths of a degree Celsius in terms of averted warming by the year 2100. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not stay up late at night worried about the possible two-tenths of a, deg- of a degree warmer world, uh, degree Celsius warmer world we may be living in at some point in the future. I certainly do not worry about the four-tenths of a degree that would be warmer around the world by the year 2100. Especially because, as we know, there have been trends of warming and cooling going on for the history of the planet. So 
it is in fact not anything particularly new. Um, but there are some people that are on the right even that take this stuff pretty seriously and, and believe that the Paris Agreement is something that we should stay party to in some level. Nikki Haley, ambassador to the United Nations. The media likes her a lot, which should be of concern. Here's what she said. What would you say to supporters of it who think it would be disastrous to pull out for the human race? Look, we care as much about the climate as we do about jobs. There's a way to balance it. You don't have to have one or the other. And I think that's what um, everyone internationally needs to know. We're not going to start polluting and creating all these problems in the world. What we are going to do is balance it out. All right, that's a fair answer. I was a little hard on her. Balance it out. Balance it out. If by balancing out she means pull out of the Paris Agreement, well, then I'm then I'm fine with it. Here's what the balance could be, by the way. Also in this, uh, Nick Loris is the author here of this Heritage Report um, on the economic impact of the plan. I thought this was really, this is where thing, this is where it matters, right? I know we're sitting around, you're like, Buck, the, the, you know, the bunch of climate hippies, come on. Don't waste all of our time on this. There's other stuff to talk about. I, I understand that. But if they got their way and if we, in fact, stayed on board with the Paris Agreement. And it should be noted, the longer we, you know, in America are in one of these agreements, the more it just becomes a thing that we're expected to abide by because people here will say, oh, look, it's a thing that we have to abide by it, right? The environmentalist lobby will use our inclusion in the agreement as uh, as as a binding agent to make sure that we stay in the agreement, right? We've been in this agreement for three years. Oh, we could never leave. Um, but here's what would happen, uh, according to Heritage, and you know they they crunch the numbers on this, and I, I know that the the lying left would say that you know you you know Heritage's numbers are wrong or whatever. Meanwhile, their numbers about climate change are wrong all the time. But we're supposed to ignore that. That's not supposed to matter to us for some reason. Here's what it would mean for you, for those of you listening to this show right now. If we stay in the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, whether you're worried about polar bears swimming longer distances between ice flows or not, whether you're worried about um, whatever Al Gore says is going to happen to Florida, which didn't happen to Florida, but, you know, people just pretend that he didn't say it, I guess. Whether you're worried about that or not, here's what will happen if we stay in this agreement. Gordon Heritage, an overall average shortfall of nearly 400,000 jobs. This is by 2035. An average manufacturing shortfall of over 200,000 jobs. A total income loss, pay attention to this one, everybody, of more than $20,000 for a family of four. An aggregate gross domestic product loss of over $2.5 trillion. And increases in household electricity expenditures between 13 and 20%. So, um... While people like to go on social media and talk about how they're so environmentally friendly and they totally like do like I totally take like paper bags, not plastic at the store. In fact, I bring a reusable now. It's canvas. Now, so you know you can take it wherever, man. Like you can take your canvas bag and just fill it and fill it again, man. Uh, they like to think of themselves as both pro science and thoughtful and. Good, good citizens of the earth, of course, by being in favor of this climate agreement. Um, meanwhile, 
it means it's money. It's going to be money out of your pocket, and that should make everybody take a moment to think about this. An overall average shortfall of four hundred thousand jobs, uh, and costing you twenty thousand dollars. The U.S. economy two point five trillion. I mean, just being told that my electricity bill might go up twenty percent for what? And by the way, this. The, the part of the problem with uh, energy policy that's driven by environmentalist hysteria is that it's not even just the numbers you can see very readily. It's also the downstream impacts of the regulatory policies that come from the environmentalist craziness, uh, as I've, I think, mentioned on this show before. But uh, and those of you who want a, a really good book on a history of petroleum and, and the carbon based uh, economy or history of oil, really. You can read Daniel Juergen's book, The Prize. Highly right. Just, just comes to mind right now. Those of you who asked me for books, it's a great book. I read it, loved it. And it gives, you know, you, you're like, wait a second. You mean that, you know, oil was, you know, that America was the original oil superpower and that oil was first discovered in, and, 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 uh, and used in commercial purposes in Pennsylvania? And before that, people were using whale oil? Yeah, I know, right? That's... That's not sustainable. That's not a good idea. Um, but yeah, Daniel Jorgen's the prize. I really recommend it. Uh, all right, a, a little more on climate, and then we, we, we've got a lot of other stuff to get to. So uh, I'll be right back, team. Stay with me. She's back, everybody. Hello, Hillary Clinton. You thought you thought you'd be free of Hillary Clinton, didn't you? But no, you are not. You are not. She's back and she wants to talk to you. I miss you. Uh, she was giving a speech earlier today at uh, where was she? I don't even know where she was. Com- what was this? California, some sort of co- code con. Is it code conference? There we go. Thank you. Um. So yeah. They they were she was giving a speech and she said some stuff. She said some I, I wanted to talk to you. So she said, for example, that she was the victim of the assumption that she would win. Uh, that was one fun little soundbite from Hillary Clinton. Always the victim. But she spoke about the email server, for example, which she called. Well, I'll let her say it for. The overriding issue that uh, affected the election that I had any control over, because I had no control over the Russians. Um, too bad about that, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it, I hope. Um, was the way that uh, the use of uh, my email account was uh, turned into, you know, the biggest scandal since Lord knows when. And, you know, I'm just, in the book, I'm just using every... Uh, Everything that anybody else said about it besides me to basically said this was the biggest nothing burger ever. Um, do, do we really get to call it a nothing burger when the FBI director stands up doing you a solid, by the way, Hillary, when Comey, don't forget it was Comey who did this, stood up and said that what she did was uh, reckless in her handling of classified information. That's a, that's a nothing, that's a nothing burger. I mean, you know, you can say that it's, you, you know, that she's not the modern day Benedict Arnold for this. I, I get that. Right. You know, you could say that she's not, it's not the worst thing that's ever been done to the country, but a nothing burger. 
Wow, that is quite a rewriting of history, which usually Hillary pays other people to do for her under her name with whatever it is, 16 books or something that she's put out there. Uh, By the way, that's also, as an aside, but a very important one, I think. These stories about Trump's uh, and Kushner's real estate empire and their business interests around the world, and uh, one of the reasons that that doesn't resonate except for with people who hate Trump and so anything that's bad they like. But one of the reasons that a lot of the rest of us don't see it is that the Clintons were engaged in a massive influence peddling scheme around the world. They were selling access to policymakers. They were selling the promise of future favors from the Oval Office openly and on, on a, a, a grandiose and elaborate scale. And also were just... A, a giant excuse for turning public office into a money-making machine. And the Clintons are held up still as some kind of political royalty by the Democrats and by the media. Uh, you know, the, the Clintons are rent-a-politicians, and we've known that for a long time. So why are we supposed to think that, oh, Jared Kushner met with somebody from China about some investment somewhere? i I'll be honest with you, it's really hard to get anybody who doesn't hate Trump interested in that because... For one, what's been done by the Clintons for so long without so much as a peep from anybody has just made it all seem so normal. And I think with the Clintons, it was really bad. I mean, I'm not even speaking specifically to any one Jared or Trump issue. Um, but anyway, I, I've got more on on Hillary, but I don't want to uh, I don't want to run into the break here, which is going to happen in a second. Uh, she talks about Kofefe. Those of you who might have missed it. I'll bring you up to speed on uh, on Kofefe in a few minutes. Uh, also, if you want to call in, 844-900-BUCK. And do check out BuckSexton.com. We had that Sununu clip up, and people really enjoyed that. We post things, news stories throughout the day. I also collect uh, emails there for our upcoming uh, TBD when the release will be, but upcoming uh, Team Buck newsletter. Um, still working on the T-shirts, by the way, I know. I did give you a book recommendation for today, though, The Prize by Daniel Jurgen, just because I thought maybe you'd like it. Um, we're going to talk more politics right after the break. Stay with me. Welcome back, everyone. We've got our friend Elena Plot on the line. She is a staff writer for TheWashingtonian.com. Elena, thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so you have a piece here in Washingtonian.com, The Trump Town Tribunes. The 45th president has upended the hierarchy of the White House briefing room, our guide to its new right-wing power centers. Do tell. What are the new right-wing power centers in this uh, White House briefing room? Yeah, so, Buck, I think one of the most interesting things about this administration from a media standpoint is that you've seen all of these new outlets kind of emerge from the woodwork as actual players when it comes to press briefings and exclusive interviews with the president. Um, Some of the most interesting, I would say, right now, um, you know, Fox News, of course, but also Fox and Friends as a segment. If you really want to understand where the president's headspace is on a day-to-day basis, you want to go to Fox and Friends, and I think that's why their ratings have been skyrocketing. Morning Joe, honestly, is relevant just because when you want to understand what the president's going to say, what he's going to tweet, what he's going to be responding to, Fox and Friends is the place to go. 
And then, you know, whatever you want to say about this opinion-wise, a lot of Russia-related outlets have become prominent. Russia Today, which goes by RT, Sputnik, those guys get questions frequently in the briefing room with Sean Spicer. And again, whatever opinion you have about that, they're players now. And you've got to, you know, a lot of reporters have to reconcile themselves with that, that they, they're they a competitor now for scoops. I've also seen that there's the Skype array is going to be making a comeback so reporters can join in the briefing room via Skype. Correct. And, you know, there are a lot of feelings about that. But I'll say, you know, just as a reporter, I think it's terrific. I think one of the, you know, perilous things about D.C.-based media, especially during the election, as you know, Buck, very few people actually got it right with what was going to happen in this election. And I think the focus on local media, you know, is a really positive thing about this administration. I think it's something his base really likes. And I think including those Skype sessions with local-based media is a really positive thing for this administration and something that they've gotten great feedback on. What are you hearing about the possible shakeup in the White House? We know there was a guy from the communications department who just left, a senior figure, but uh, what what else is coming? Correct. So Mike Dubke, the comms director, has left. So you now have Sean Spicer serving as both press secretary and comms director. What my sources in the White House are telling me is that it's hard to know exactly right now what's going to happen. This president and his Top staffers change their mind day to day. Again, it dep- you know, going back to media, if they hear on Fox and Friends suddenly, what my source, what my best White House source tells me, listen, if you go on Fox and Friends and hear suddenly that Sean Spicer is the best thing that's ever happened to political media, Trump may keep him for the day. If you go on and the hosts are saying Sean Spicer's got to go, that could really influence the president's decision making for the day. So to kind of, you know. I, I do think a lot of the headlines about an imminent staff shakeup um, when, in the comms department especially are a bit premature because so much about what this White House wants to do personnel-wise is day-to-day. Are you hearing anything about, and we're speaking to Elena Plot, everyone of uh, Washingtonian.com. Um, uh, Elena, Jared and Ivanka may be heading to New York? Jared and Ivanka may be heading to New York. I, I think that's overblown, Buck. Um What my sources tell me is that Jared is going to keep a bit quieter of a profile after all of these allegations about, you know, hoping to create a secret channel with the Kremlin. But I don't think anything as drastic of a move to New York all of a sudden is going to happen. I could be wrong, but my sources indicate to me that that's a little bit um, superfluous to suggest something like that. All right. Well, we will have to keep an eye on it. Anything else that you see? Any other political story that we should uh, be paying attention to in the days ahead that maybe isn't top of the headlines right now? Absolutely. I mean, I, I do think this should be up in the headlines, and it is for a few outlets. But the the fate of Reince Priebus, I think, if we're talking about staff shakeups, it's not the comms department we want to be looking at. It's that really close inner circle of advisors. I don't think that Reince Priebus has been someone, based on my reporting, that Trump has felt um, has really stayed, one, stayed loyal to him, but also has provided for him when it comes to that initial health care bungling of a vote. I mean, that, based on my sourcing, that has really stayed with Trump. And he really believes that Reince Priebus was the reason that we didn't, the House didn't initially get that health care bill through. It would not surprise me if it if within the next few weeks or this summer at some point you see Wright's Priebus gone. What do you make of Kofefe? <laughs> do I have to have an opinion, Buck? I, I think, think everyone has to have an opinion on Kofefe. 
listen, I think the typo is coverage. And I think that's nice. It's nice that we have a president who's a human being and has a typo every now and then. But I also don't feel the need to go to Vox for a think piece about Kofefe. I feel like Kofefe has to become something now, though. You know, it's it's a neologism. It, it needs, But it's a neologism without a definition. We need a new word here. Here's what I think. I think that if reports are true from the Times and the Post that this White House is convening a war room to tackle, you know, related questions to this so-called Russia scandal, if Kovefe needs to be the secret service word for the convening of this meeting, I think that works fine. All right. Elena Plot, everyone check out her latest at Washingtonian.com. And Elena, we always appreciate it. Thanks for stopping by. Great to talk to you, Buck. Bye. And, you know, Hillary has her own... Ver- oh, for those of you who don't know, Kofefe was in a uh, Donald Trump tweet, and it has become one of these... It's taken on a life of its own. Uh, so it, it was. I mean, she's right. It was coverage, and he he said, uh, Dis- despite the constant negative press, Kofefe... Uh, press coverage. It's just a typo. But it, a typo from Trump becomes a, a, a news story unto itself. It says a lot. I don't I don't think uh, anybody would have ever imagined what a, a huge role the specific social media platform of Twitter would play uh, in the Trump administration. I know a lot of you are probably not on Twitter, uh, but it, it is a preferred means of communication between Donald Trump and the world. So if for nothing else, you could go on Twitter and follow Donald Trump and follow Buck Sexton, too. Uh, But here's what Hillary Clinton, back to her speech earlier today, here's what she had to say about Kofefe. Play clip, whatever that Hillary clip is. 42, thank you. I don't think we can get into Confifi right now because it's a longer thing. But I thought thought it was a hidden message to the Russians. Oh, you (laughs) did? Uh, so is that a serious is it serious or not that Trump worked with her because see that's that's a funny joke if the president didn't engage in treason but but if he engaged in treason that's not funny right so which is it I'm fine with laughing at it and thinking that that's that's a cute little moment as long as we all realize that the reason it's funny is because the whole Russia collusion thing is preposterous right meanwhile I'm I'm seeing here on uh, mediaite.com which is a site that some of you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, it's people in the media who do TV in particular are, are obsessed with it because it takes the most viral clips of the day of people usually yelling at people, you know, that's not true, blah, 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 you know, getting up in each other's faces, so to speak, on, on cable news. The cable news war is playing out before your very eyes. But Mediaite.com has up that Hillary Clinton said that Russian efforts to interfere in the election were, quote, guided by Americans and that voters were, quote, targeted with this false information who were generally trying to genuinely trying to make up their minds. Um, I mean, that's I, I want to pull the transcript of this. We might actually try to grab the audio of this for you later and play it just so you can hear it. But wow. So you've got an investigation going on. The press is pushing the investigation as the as the number one news story in the country without fail every day this is a daily investigation update now this is what we're hearing about this is the dominant uh dominant issue in the news and and as i said if you go to like cnn.com you know cnn is the russia trump collusion 
investigation network now. That That is what they do. Uh, so Hillary Clinton, though, is still a very prominent Democrat that a lot of Democrats rely on for, well, I don't know what, but they do. Uh, Hillary Clinton is out there and she is saying pretty outright that Russia tipped the election against her. Um, that, that should, I think, give the lie or th- that should prove the lie when you have people in the media that are going to go out there and say that they don't have a conclusion. They haven't come to a conclusion yet on this issue. They They obviously have. They very much believe that this has happened, and so therefore it is okay for Hillary Clinton to just make these kinds of statements. Uh, One more. She likes to talk about things like how great she is and how Trump stole the election. See, you know, it doesn't sound like her, but you know it's her. You know it's Hillary deep down inside. Somehow it speaks speaks to the truth of of who Hillary is on on the inside. Oh, it's amazing. Um, but she also spoke quickly. I just wanted to hit this, and then we'll move on to another topic here about uh, Goldman Sachs. Why did you do those? I, I don't. I don't. Why do you have Goldman Sachs here? Because <laughs> they pay us. They, they paid me. <laughs> yeah, no, but there's. A... <laughs> you know, but... They, I know they paid you, but yes. and they paid you a lot. Yes, but yes. you didn't. You're yes. not somebody who needed that money for the next week's shopping, and you might have, you knew you might okay. have run, so why do it? Well, I gave speeches to many, many groups, you know, just a, a wide range of right. groups, right? And not just in the United States, but uh, particularly in Canada and a few other places. And I was a senator from New York. I knew these people, and I knew what they did for the economy, and I knew what they did to the economy. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, you know, speaking to them, raising questions, which I did in 2008 oh, yeah, yeah, and 2009. Sure, that's what she did. Wait, oh, sorry, you can keep, let, let, we can let her finish. Oh, is that it? Oh, that's it. All right. Oh, my bad. I thought we could. Well, it looks like we're not going to let her finish. Um, but I'll finish for her. The answer to the question, which I have to give credit to whoever that guy is at that forum for asking and pressing her on, right? You know, if that were if that were Barbara Walters or, you know, I don't know, uh, Andrea Mitchell or, uh, you know, Anderson Cooper or whatever, they would not have pressed on the issue, I don't think, of, okay, yeah, you gave a speech, but I mean, you know, you're worth like over $100 million. You're running for president. Do you really need to take a lot of money from Goldman Sachs? Uh, before you run for, pre- I mean, for remember, this isn't like campaign contributions. This is just a check to go speak to them. You, you need you need that two hundred and fifty k that badly, and you notice she dances around. With, well, you know, I give speeches to a lot of people because they want to hear my voice because I'm amazing. You'll notice that. Here's the real answer to why did Hillary, when she knew she would be running for president, when she knew that this would be a political liability for her. And when she knew that if people found out what she said, it'd be clear that she was just a cronyist and a a crony capitalist and somebody who is very much, you know, worshiping at the altar of power and money. Um, the reason she took Goldman Sachs money is she is rapaciously greedy. She is unceasingly grasping 
She has a hole in her soul that will only be filled by vast troves of cash and power. That's the real answer. And this is who they wanted to make the next president of the United States. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to tell you that Trump is a, is, a, is a model citizen for your children to, you know, aspire to be just like. I, I'm not going to play that game. But at least he's kind of likable. Hillary is just everything is a lie. It's not bombast. It's not overstatement. It's not loose with the facts. It's just it's just always the opposite of the truth. When when, when it's in her when it is in her favor to lie, she lies just outright, which is, again, I know why people just don't really care. And the media says, oh, look at all these lies that Trump says about crowd size or about this or that. Yeah, but. Trump doesn't lie about stuff that people care about in quite the way that Hillary Clinton does. And I and look, I know two wrongs don't make it right. I get that. But the answer to the question, as I said to you, why did Hillary Clinton asking her and she she won't give it there because, you know, she's not somebody who needs the money. Why take two hundred fifty thousand dollars from Goldman Sachs before you're running for the presidency? Because she's really greedy and she thought that she would win anyway and people would cover for her. But mostly just because she's really greedy. Because she is. That's that's who we're dealing with. And, you know, it takes a very particular kind of person to set up a global charity that's really not about charity, but that's about creating a political patronage network and funding one's travel habits on private jets and one's lifestyle and providing jobs for friends and uh, creating a, a giant organization for the betterment of Hillary Clinton's meeting schedule and Bill Clinton's meeting schedule around the world and call it a charity. That, that takes a special kind of person. And Hillary Clinton's that kind of person. She's amazing. All right, we'll hit a break. We'll be right back. Richard in New Jersey, W-I-L-M. Hey, Richard. Hi, Buck. I really just want to say thank you for letting me on the air. I just want to say I can't believe, I can't believe how fierce the, the opposition is to, determined to take down Donald Trump. I know that there's an axiom that, you know, that Harry Truman said, if he can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. But I just can't believe that they are so determined to take him out. I'm, I'm just surprised that they're, they're ferocity. You're, really? I mean, because they, they view him as a threat not just to their ideology, but to their very way of life, right? Trump is a threat to the elite's prerogatives and privileges. Yeah, I'm surprised. I mean, it really surprises me. It really amazes me. I've never I mean, this, this put. I mean, I'm just surprised. I can't believe it. I mean, you know. <laughs> okay, I, I hear you, man. I mean, yeah. Well, this is, this is the world we're living in. Unfortunately, they are not going to stop until they, they get their man. They think their man is Trump, and they want him impeached. They want him out. I only hope that Trump... I only hope, I only think that Trump has to have rely on his own resources. I mean, there's nothing that anybody out in the hinterland can do much, except he's like, uh, he's like David and Goliath. I mean, you know, he, he's got the slingshot, and that's all, about, that's all he's got against this, this deep state monster. All right, we'll see, Richard. Shield time, my man. Jamie in Florida, iHeart app. What's up, Jamie? Hi, Buck. I have a question. I'm not great on names, but I listen to the Blaze all day long. 
And Mike Opelka was playing a clip a week or so ago where the guy from the FBI was in front of a congresswoman and sworn in, and he was asked. I think it was Acting Director McCabe. Huh? Acting Director of the FBI, McCabe. No, the one that was just fired. Uh, oh, he Comey. Was in front of, yes, Comey was in front of a congresswoman from Hawaii and asked at any time ever in the history of, you know, you working for the FBI, has anyone ever tried to stop you from doing an investigation? And twice he answered no. So if he can say that in front of a you know sworn statement to a in a hearing in front of a congressman or congresswoman whatever, how can he go back in front of you know a sworn statement and say, "But Trump tried to make me quit." Well, well, see, but, 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 but Jamie, we don't know if he's going to say that, right? The media is reporting on it, but we don't know. We don't know, so we got to see. But I I hear you, and I appreciate you calling in and pointing that out. Thank you very much, uh, team. Much more coming, including uh, well fantastic columnist. Stay with me. A massive blast in the Afghan capital uh, killed at least 90 people. Um, This is a story that uh, has been picked up uh, by all the news wires. This one uh, I'm reading to you now from the Wall Street Journal. A truck packed with explosives detonated in the heart of the Afghan capital on Wednesday, killing at least 90 people as the country reels from an escalating militant campaign that is ramping up pressure on the Trump administration over how to counter the violence. The massive blast struck during the morning rush hour on the outskirts of a heavily fortified part of the city, known as the Green Zone, where major embassies and U.S. military headquarters are located. It was the first time a truck bomb had struck in the area. It had collap- it collapsed buildings, blew out glass windows, and sent a mushroom cloud of smoke up over the city. In fact, I saw there was video circulating on social media of the enormous uh, explosive uh, cloud that had, or the cloud that formed after the explosion. Uh, the... Afghan intelligence agency is reportedly saying uh, that it was the Haqqani Network, which is a militant group that's tied to the Taliban. Uh, This has been a continuing, uh, this has been a a continuing threat. These massive car bombs, of course, have major casualties that come as part of it. That's the first, your first concern is just that they can kill dozens, uh, dozens upwards of, of 100 people. Um, but they also are symbolic uh, and they're meant to show the Afghan people that nowhere is safe. And as long as you have militants with the capability of getting a massive truck bomb into the single most uh, heavily patrolled and defended area of the capital city of this country, it's very hard to convince those Uh, who hear about this, because a lot of places in Afghanistan don't have internet access. In fact, a lot of them don't have electricity. Um, It is very hard uh, to convince them that there will be security provided for them by the government. 
so that's one aspect of this. I know the Trump administration is is looking. Um, the Trump administration is, is looking over its Afghan policy right now, and uh, there are more airstrikes going on than uh, in recent in recent years. There's a lot of uh, military activity going on in Afghanistan. You had the Moab drop uh, that was used against the Islamic State in Afghanistan not long ago. But as I said at the time, that was also a symbolism of sorts, right? Yes, it was effective in the limited task of taking out a whole bunch of ISIS militants who were running around in a cave complex in eastern Afghanistan. Um, but that wasn't going to change the reality on the ground. And, and here's what's happening. And this is classic counter or classic insurgency stuff that's going on. The central government in Afghanistan is losing control of more and more areas in, well, first the hinterlands and now in the rural areas. They are ceding large parts of the country, large pieces of territory to the Taliban and Taliban control and control to Taliban aligned groups while uh, they try to hold important cities and population centers with their forces. Now, in a short term basis, I can understand why that would be the strategy. The problem is stalemate does not favor the central government in this case, because going back to the notion of whether or not people believe that you can provide security for them if you only control the cities and not the countryside, it becomes difficult to make the case, especially in a, in a country that is quite rural like Afghanistan, uh, that you are really in control. And the prominence of shadow governments, shadow governors, Taliban figures who are running their own de facto states within a state in Afghanistan, that's growing. Uh, this is going to force a very difficult national conversation, I think. Uh, because the Obama administration surged and then drew down dramatically, uh, surged to a, a height of over 100,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan, and then drew down forces uh, quickly. And that was all for, or the timetable was on a political schedule. It was about Obama ending wars, right? Iraq was the bad war. Afghanistan was the good war. That was the very... Uh, simplistic and wrong-headed logic of the Obama administration coming in, um, but they wanted to show that they were winning in Afghanistan and they had won in Afghanistan and they were going to declare that combat operations were over. Um, well, while we've gotten down to about 9,000 U.S. troops and the, uh, the coalition there is much less active in kinetic military activity than they had been in years past, Taliban has been capitalizing on this. This is a problem um, that the Taliban right now is in its strongest position. And I've been bringing this up with you. It's in its strongest position since 2001. You don't get the sense. There's such a focus right now on, on Russia and Russia reporting um, that you hear very little about what's going on in Afghanistan. We're, we do have U.S. troops who are still deployed. Uh, we do still take losses. We are still taking casualties uh, in Afghanistan, not of the numbers we had been because they're not 
uh, there are not as many U.S. soldiers engaged in frontline combat, but of course there are still special operations and other things going on that we don't know about and we don't talk about. Uh, but what are we going to do in Afghanistan? Airstrikes are not going to do it. Airstrikes are not enough. I can promise you that. And Afghanistan is a country that I, I know well. Afghanistan is a country that I um, have spent time in. And uh, there's no way that you're going to subdue or defeat the Taliban from the air. That's just not going to happen. So that's not an option. The ground force that we have been building there for years, many years now, over a decade, the ground force is really of police and various military units, Afghan military units, are just unlikely to be able to continue to hold ground against the Taliban. I mean, if we if we leave and no longer can call in air cover and no longer provide logistics and intelligence and other support to the Afghan uh, forces, if we don't give them any help, it's just a matter of time before a major city or two is overrun. And you see in insurgencies, once the bad guys start taking cities, then forget about the good guys who are trying to fight them. The normal folks, everyday people, villagers, people in towns, you know, guys who are, uh, you know, selling stuff in the markets, guys who are herding animals out in the fields, they have to make a choice. And that choice becomes, do I... Uh, side with the government? Do I help the government? Will I inform about Taliban positions to the police? Will I let the next military convoy know that I saw an IED emplaced in the road? Or do I not do that because not that I'm a, an Afghan traitor, not that I like the Taliban even at all, though there's also a lot of sympathy for the Taliban, depending on what part of the country you're in. The Taliban is a Pashto, uh, a Pashto Sunni uh, terrorist group. Um, but so they're Sunni Muslims and they are Pashtos by, uh, by tribe. And a lot of other Pashtos are, or Pashto speaking groups are like, you know, Hey, uh, these guys are going to stay around no matter what, maybe we should go with them. But I'm just talking about even the fence sitters, the people who are neutral, who right now are looking at what happens. They, they might hear about this uh, many of them obviously will, but they will hear about this enormous explosion in the center of Kabul, a capital city, and think to themselves, okay, uh, how long can this last before these outside powers, including the United States, just decide that, that enough is enough? Uh, and like I said, the guy selling his wares in the market or uh, herding his animals in the field has to think not just where my loyalties lie, but how do I survive? And once you get to that distinct, once you get to that decision-making process for the average person in a country where it's not a question of where their ideology takes them necessarily, that's a whole another component of this. Um, but when it becomes an issue of how do I not end up uh, executed? How do I make sure my family doesn't end up executed or my house burned down and all my possessions taken because I am viewed as a sympathizer? Then you see that the insurgents are winning. Um, when people are afraid because the government can't protect them, the insurgency is on the offensive, whether militarily or not. The insurgency is gaining ground because this is, like so many other things, a hearts and minds campaign. And if you can just instill fear into people, then 
you can have the same effect as if they were ideologically aligned with you. They'll go along with you just because they don't want to die. It's a very understandable human uh, response. We, we get that. Um, and what we're going to have to decide in this country pretty soon, uh, what the leadership is going to have to figure out. And I know we've got Secretary of Defense Mattis and, and uh, you know General McMaster, and I, I know we have some very revered military minds and men of great service and talent in senior national security roles, but we've had men of great talent and all of that in, in senior national security roles and on the Pentagon side and elsewhere for years and haven't figured this one out. You know, Afghanistan is known as the graveyard of empires and people are uh, quick to point out those who know some of the history um, that whether it's Alexander the great uh, or the British or the Russians or, you know, you pick your pick your imperial or the, the, the cons, even Genghis Khan's descendants, uh, pick your major outside power and subduing and controlling Afghanistan has seemed to be largely impossible. A peaceful Afghanistan is not impossible. In fact, people will tell you stories. Even I've, I've heard from people who would say that, you know, back in like the 60s, you can go bicycling in Afghanistan. You'd see, you know, ladies walking around in blue jeans and it was fine. And then radical Islam came along. But another story for another time. Well, also the Soviets, but uh, and, and radical Islam and the country's been destroyed ever since. Uh, but what do we do in Afghanistan? W what is the fight going to be for us? Um, what are we willing to do and what, what should we commit to? Because if the mission is just holding pattern, is that really fair? Is that really sound policy? Just keep enough troops there to prevent Kabul from falling to the enemy? That doesn't sound like it's enough, but are we going to send another 100,000 troops there? Try to do the fighting for the Afghans? Let's be honest, that's what it is. I, don't, I wouldn't want to give that order. I wouldn't make that decision. So this problem looms in the background. You don't hear a lot of uh, policy talk about this. We're also focused on... You know, Kofefe and Trump tweets and uh, Kathy Griffin and, of course, Russia collusion, all of that. Right. The latest Jared Kushner uh, allegation about either financial or political impropriety. No one's talking about a war that we are still involved in, that we are not winning. And in fact, you can make a pretty clear case that we are losing. And no one's talking about it. I mean, I talked to you about it here, but it seems to just escape much of the uh, the news media's attention and we have we have hard choices to make and we're getting to the point where it's going to be like all right do we just have a, you know an embassy and maybe some military trainers to try to help keep things going and see what happens or are we going to go guns blazing in a big way with large numbers again that's really what we're facing because the status quo is not sustainable no, no one's speaking of it that way but that's the truth the status quo is not sustainable Based on what we're seeing right now, the Taliban will be taking major cities, and that is going to be uh, a nightmare. And it means that it means eventually, I think, the government will fall. And then imagine what we're going to be dealing with. The Taliban could be in charge again. All right. Uh, Got to hit a break here, team. We will be right back. Scott in Florida, WFLA. How you doing? Hey, bud. Love your show down here, man. You're awesome. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. 
hey, man, uh, this Korean thing, man, uh, I want to see them get it on, man, finish it. Um, you know, they should have finished it uh, in the 50s with General MacArthur, and they kicked the can down the road to, uh, what, 60, 70 years or whatever. Yeah. And as far as Afghanistan, 16 years, what would Patton do? I don't know. You know, I, I say when I say, uh, Scott, that, that I, I think that we have uncomfortable questions about Afghanistan that we need to face. I don't pretend to have the answers. I, I know what isn't going to work, which is that no one pays any attention to this. And the Taliban just keeps increasing its share of control of the country year in and year out. Right. That that only goes to one place and it's a bad place. They've been doing this for thousands of years. Take your hands off of it. Let them continue to do what they do. Just like Trump said, we're not going to bring democracy here. Democracy won't work in Afghanistan. Well, that we need to be prepared for the possibility that the Taliban will be in control, officially in control of, or I shouldn't say officially, but I mean, you know, de facto government in part of of Afghanistan and eventually could could take the whole thing again i mean it might that might be five or ten years out but that would not be surprising to me if that's where if that's where this went well we shouldn't be any more blood or money poured into it it just just shouldn't be the, and look the, if, the, if that's the answer the as a country the, if it's that we need to go scott yeah that but then we should go right we should say all right look that's it no no more no more surges no more major deployments you know, it's up to the Afghan people to fight their, to fight this battle. And look, there are other failed states where we haven't invaded and there's been a terrorist presence there. And we just try to do a, a, a CT first, a counterterrorism first strategy, whereby we contain to the degree we can. But of course, Afghanistan has a particular resonance as an incubator for terrorism because of 9-11, right? So that's why it's, I think it's hard for the American psyche to walk away from an Afghanistan where the Taliban may take charge and play host to global jihadists again. You know what I mean? Can anybody give us a victory? A victory, just like World War II. Can anybody give us a victory? I love Mattis. I love him, and uh, I hope, you know, I just really hope. Yeah, I look, I, I hope so, too. Um, Mattis is a, is a much smarter guy on these things than I am, so, I, you know, maybe he's got a great plan, and I don't, I don't know what's going on, but... Total war, baby. Total war. Well, total, total war in Afghanistan is 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 a tough thing because you end up spending a lot of. And Scott, thank you for uh, shield time, man. Thank you for calling in. You know, you end up dropping a lot of very expensive ordnance on very low tech structures, and uh, you know, there's no shortage of of uh, Taliban fighters out there. And as long as you know, one of the main issues, and, and this doesn't really often get to discuss one of the main problems with our whole strategy is as long as pakistan exists as a sanctuary for taliban and haqqani and other other jihadists uh and and they know that we really can't get them on the pakistani side of the border and they have all kinds of of support on that side of the border um as long as they can do that we can never truly eradicate the taliban and when you can't eradicate something like the taliban and it can always uh, essentially go into a little cross-border exile, get stronger, and come back, um, you're not going to defeat it. So I, I don't pretend to have an answer on this, but I do know that what we're doing can't continue. And I think that there's it's just a matter of time now before we find out what the strategy review of Afghanistan... But keep in mind, Obama did a strategy review of Afghanistan. 
Now, I know you're saying, well, that was Obama, but, you know, we've been here before and, and Obama decided to surge and withdraw at the same time, right? I'm going to surge, but I'm going to tell you when the withdrawal is, which was not uh, wise, but there were political considerations there. I mean, he was fighting as commander in chief, President Obama was fighting Afghanistan with an eye towards his approval ratings the whole time. And that just doesn't work. Um, that's unfortunately one of the legacies of the Obama administration is that they allowed such a deterioration to occur in both Iraq and Afghanistan on his watch. But perhaps uh, more of a discussion for another time. I mean, some of it now, but more of a discussion for another time. I, I want to talk to you a bit about, uh, well, yes, I'll talk to you about um, Kathy Griffin. But but first, uh, before we get into Kathy Griffin's, because I'm sure a lot of you are like, Buck, you know, she's an idiot and she messed up and, you know, whatever. Uh, get into that a little later. But first, I want to talk to you about Venezuela, um, which is still not getting nearly enough like Afghanistan, Venezuela also does not get enough media attention. And that's why I hope people who listen to this show, who join me in the Freedom Hut, uh, appreciate that we cover things that matter that other people don't. We'll be right back. Why don't we hear more about the socialist catastrophe that is Venezuela? And why is it that given what's going on there, you have riots in the streets, you have uh, protesters squaring off with security forces, Molotov, cocktails being thrown, violence, despair, poverty, lines for water, shortages of food, shortages of medicine, a totalitarian thugocracy oppressing a people in our own hemisphere. Why is it that you so rarely see a news story on any of the cable networks, save one, about Venezuela? It, it 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 kind of befuddles, doesn't it? Isn't it a, isn't it a bit of a, a mystery at first until you think more about it, and then it all makes perfect sense. Uh, Venezuela should be a news story. I a hat tip the Media Research Center for a report by Mike Ciandela, uh, uh, which says the following: The big three evening newscasts have tried to pretend this crisis does not exist. Uh, offering virtually no coverage as the situation has deteriorated over the past four years. A new study by the Media Research Center found that from March 2013, after the death of strongman Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, through May 29, 2017, the ABC, CBS, and NBC evening news shows have aired a mere 25 stories, totaling 28 minutes, 39 seconds of coverage which translates to uh, 39 or 30 seconds per month on Venezuela. Uh, In the same time period, approximately 50,000 individual news stories on other topics aired on these broadcasts. So, and look, I know it's a big world and this is a foreign news story. And oftentimes one one of the complaints that you will hear about American news coverage is that it is uh, not focused enough on foreign issues, but then again, shouldn't we care more about what's happening in our own country, of course? But people always say this, right? And this is why sophisticates out there, oh, hello, the fancy people. What do they like? Oh, they like the BBC. But not even just the BBC. They like BBC International because they really want to know about the latest parliamentary elections in Botswana or the machinations of the economic minister of Azerbaijan. 
we don't care about that stuff quite as much. I think that's fair to say. Uh, we care more about America, but uh, this is a criticism you'll often hear. But this is why it's different. Uh, well, for one, this is a story about a country that should be wealthy, um, should be doing quite well, has the largest proven oil reserves in the world, which is the equivalent of having a giant ATM machine within your sovereign territory. Um, and and it is in it is a failed state now. I mean, it is in crisis. It is in absolute desperation. It is spiraling and getting worse with each passing week. There is an opposition movement. There is a strongman. There are protesters in the streets. There are jackbooted thugs pulling people out of their homes. People are being killed. This is in our own hemisphere. This is in America's backyard, so to speak. And not a lot of media coverage of it at all. Sure, there'll be items from the international uh, bureaus of various newspapers on it. I'm not saying there's a blackout on it, but isn't this a bigger story than we're hearing about? I mean, given how much attention is paid to the latest, most minute update on all things Russia, isn't it at least conceivable that we could find something here uh, to take away from this beyond just understanding the terrible situation that the Venezuelan people find themselves in. You see, there's an ideological reason for this. The the ideological bias of the media is showing here. They were, by and large, many of them, I am speaking in generalities, I know, but there were many members of the elite media who applauded or at least tried to justify and always look on the bright side of the Hugo Chavez regime and then its successor, the Maduro regime. So they were saying things originally about how, well, of course, this was social justice. So uh, this is why you would have people writing in places like The Nation, for example, after Hugo Chavez died. The Nation is one of these leftist websites that I would never recommend you go to except as a form of understanding how crazy the intellectuals of the left, the self-styled and self-described intellectuals of the left actually are and how how disconnected from reality they are. Um, but there's a piece in the nation back in 2013 when Hugo Chavez, who really got this whole uh, revolution, this, this Bolivarian revolution, that he promised started, which is really just a grandiose way of saying uh, statism with social justice attributes and redistribution of wealth. Uh, But Chavez started it, and you had the nation writing in 2013, quote, on the legacy of Hugo Chavez, yes, the Venezuelan president could be a strong man, but he leaves behind what might be called the most democratic country in the Western Hemisphere. You had people whose only job is to know what's going on in the world, to speak truth to power, to understand complex situations and share them and share analysis with the American people. You had plenty of, and they were all on the left. This was a leftist-only shortcoming, failure. Uh, They were speaking as nicely as they could about Chavez. They were always trying to take some position on Chavez that 
would allow them to virtue signal, right? I care about social justice. Therefore, sure, Chavez does some things that are bad. And then after him, sure, Nicolas Maduro, the president of the current president of Venezuela, while it has gone into the seventh circle of hell, um, sure, he's not perfect, but, you know, his intentions are good and This is all about alleviating poverty and government programs coming to the aid of the most desperately poor. So they would take that tone and they would mock the naysayers who pointed out that government control, and and this is the center of this crisis, by the way, government control and then the mechanism, the tool of destruction in Venezuela. And this is a lesson for all of us, my friends, whether it's health care or education or you name it in this country. That's why Venezuela matters, because it tells us things that we need to know for our own governance. It is the experiment played out beyond our borders from which we can learn. The government had too much control. The government claimed a revolutionary mandate via redistribution of wealth, and the weapon of that redistribution was simple. Price controls. Bread no longer costs what it costs. Bread costs what the Chavez and then Maduro governments said it costs. Well, that creates shortages. Well, then when people get mad about the shortages, what does the Venezuelan government do? Blames the fat cat capitalists. Seizes the factory. Says, we'll do a better job. You better produce the bread at that price or else. But they can't because of the laws of economics. And there's even greater shortages. Then it goes beyond that. Then it's water. Then it's medicine. Then it's, uh, then it's household machinery. Then it's, it just goes into everything. People can't buy what they need to buy. And then you have economic crises piled upon economic crisis. Um, economic crisis one after another. And all the while, the government doing two things, taking more control and making more excuses. As the government takes more control, it tramples more rights. As it tramples more rights, there's a greater backlash. In response to that backlash, it takes more control. And therefore, you see the downward spiral, the cycle in which Venezuela finds itself right now. It is a cautionary tale that should be told, that should be broadcast on the major networks in this country on a regular basis, or at least more than once every few months. But they don't, because they believe that this is not helpful to the cause of social justice, to show that social justice aspirations and state control can completely and utterly devastate a country and turn it into a hellhole. Well, that's just something that The media can't abide. That's something they can't get behind. And also, of course, the worry that some of us may poke around on Google and figure out where they stood on these issues before it all came crashing down. And you'll see that our media was far too favorable, by and large, towards the social justice dictator, Hugo Chavez. We'll be right back.
I sincerely apologize. I am just now seeing the reaction of these images. I'm a comic. I crossed the line. I moved the line. Then I cross it. I went way too far. The image is too disturbing. I understand how it offends people. It wasn't funny. I get it. I've made a lot of mistakes in my career. I will continue. I asked your forgiveness, taking down the image, going to ask the photographer to take down the image, and I beg for your forgiveness. I went too far. That is comedian uh, Kathy Griffin, not a particularly funny comedian, but neither here nor there, I suppose. For the purposes of our discussion right now, she um, posted a, a photo from a photo shoot, I should note, not something that just happened spur of the moment, not some uh, out of nowhere selfie that was ill-advised. Uh, she posted a photo, as you have no doubt heard and may have seen, a gruesome photo showing her having, a, uh, having well, the head of the president, the bloody head of President Trump in her hand. And it was really gruesome. And there's nothing even remotely funny about it. In fact, it's grotesque and also um, could be seen, understandably, legally speaking, as a threat against the president. Now, I don't think Kathy Griffin herself was trying to threaten the president, but part of the law about not making threats to, well, the president of the United States, uh, and there are also some laws regarding other federal officials, uh, you know, you can't threaten a federal judge, um, but, but part of the reason those laws exist is also because we don't want a climate in which people uh, are seeing that and made to think in some way that it is, to borrow a term from the left, normalized. Now, yesterday when I talked to you about this and I closed the show with it, and I know I'm closing the show again today with a comedian who's not funny, um, but yesterday when I closed the show, I thought that she would most likely just apologize for this and there would be no consequences for her um, and that this was a publicity stunt, which it clearly was. It's just a publicity stunt that has gone awry. That old uh, chestnut of wisdom that there's no such thing as bad publicity is clearly not true. Uh, talk to Anthony Weiner about that. Talk to any number of people about uh, bad publicity that has ruined their careers. Um, I don't know what will happen with this comedian, Kathy Griffin, after this. But I do know that CNN has uh, decided that she will no longer appear as part of their New Year's Eve coverage, which... I, I, you know, I don't know what to say. I didn't watch this. I'm not familiar with it. But, quote, CNN has terminated our agreement with Kathy Griffin to appear on our New Year's Eve program. It's according to a CNN spokesman. Now, President Trump has said that Kathy Griffin should be ashamed of herself. My children, especially my 11-year-old son, Barron, are having a hard time with this. Sick. He tweeted that out. And the First Lady also issued a statement, Melania Trump, Quote, as a mother, a wife, and a human being, that photo is very disturbing. Yeah, it is. And look, I played Griffin's apology because, uh, well, it's a follow-up to the story. Because last night, I, I thought that maybe she would be able to apologize with less consequences. I knew she was going to have to apologize. Um, but the left did pretty quickly uh, condemn this. So there, by and large, not everybody, but by and large. Um, so there are lines even for them for a... Uh, a celebrity who is in good standing with the Democrat Party and a, and a celebrity who clearly um, it, it thinks that she has a special license to push buttons and and go to go into places, go to places with her comedy, quote unquote, um, that others would get into a lot of trouble for.
Um, so she did get in trouble. She she did manage to uh, mess mess up her career with this. That's for sure. Uh, but also, I, I try to be very forgiving about people, especially when it comes to public figures, uh, people who are trying to push boundaries. You know, I do a three-hour radio show every day, and as I've said before, at some point I'm going to mess up and say something that I shouldn't or that I didn't intend to. Um, people make mistakes, uh, and so I like to be consistent in that I believe that people, one, deserve second chances whenever there's room for it, and I'll get to that in a second. And uh, two, uh, the, I don't like the outrage mobs that come for everybody, especially because the outrage mob tends to come much quicker and with more ferocity against those on the right. Uh, so conservatives have no leeway. I mean, I don't even have to do the thought experiment with you, but I guess I'm doing it now, of a similar situation, a comedian, but the head in the comedian's hand belonged to Barack Obama instead of Donald Trump. We all recognize that there would, I mean, I think there actually would be a prison sentence attached to that. I, I think we all recognize that the outcry would have been, um, well, it, it would have been a, a complete and, and utter frenzy for the person responsible to be not just shouted down, but but punished. So uh, there is that double standard that still exists, but I, I think here we see that there are lines that even the left cannot cross with impunity. Uh, I do believe in second chances. I do believe that somebody should be um, allowed to apologize and move on with his or her life. But in this case, I've got to tell you, uh, this isn't a, a kind of sorta. This isn't a close call. This wasn't a spur of the moment. This wasn't a, a slip of the lip. This wasn't, you know, just uh, a, a, mis, a misstep or a misspoken statement. This was something much worse. Uh, there was forethought in this. This was a photo shoot. The photos were taken. The photos were, they looked at the proofs afterwards. They picked the, the photo they wanted. They shared the photo widely. They had many hours before the outrage reached the fever pitch at which they decided to bring it down. Uh, th there is judgment that is so bad that there really aren't any second chances that should be given. And when you're talking about a comedian and the second chance here would just be, should she have a career in the public eye making millions of dollars and working in what is an incredibly uh, difficult and competitive business. And I think the answer to that is that, you know, th this may have and should have some real impact on her career. And I usually don't say that about people that make mistakes, but this wasn't a good faith error. This was disgraceful. Um, and she is being uh, held to account by the, by even, yes, I'll say it, even by some on the left. Uh, so that's the update to that story. Uh, team, I am planning a deep dive on the uh, Islamic State in the Philippines, probably for tomorrow. So I'm looking forward to getting into that with you. Um, please check out BuckSexon.com. We've had great pieces on it all week. Also, go to BuckSexon with America Now on iTunes. Click subscribe. Uh, do me a solid, team, if you would, as we continue to grow this show. Tell a friend about it. Share the podcast. Send an email. Say, hey, check out this guy, Buck Sexton. Uh, he's he is worth your time. Um, that would be a, a huge honor and, and a favor. Uh, as always, great to be with you here in the Freedom Hut. I thank you for uh, hanging out with me, spending your time with me. And tomorrow night, as always, I will be here with you. No matter what comes our way, no matter what trials or tribulations we face, shields high.